Walker if you have any questions or concerns. Support for WERU comes from our listeners, individual and family members, business members, and program underwriters. Thank you for your support. Info online at WERU.org. Wow, it's just before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host Cynthia Swan is up next. Hello and happy 2013. Today we are going to speak about The Healing Dance, The Life and Practice of an Expressive Arts Therapist. This is a book by author Kathleen Ray. Kathleen is a former National Ballet of Canada company dancer, award-winning choreographer, and certified psychotherapist. She holds a diploma in expressive arts therapy from ISIS Canada, a certificate in psychology from Ryerson University, and a master's degree in expressive arts therapy with a minor in psychology from the European Graduate School. A practicing therapist for the past 12 years. She's also a therapeutic performance facilitator, helping people express their life stories through multidisciplinary performance. She's taught dance therapy, dance improvisation, contact dance, and she has choreographed over 40 works for her company, Raison d'Atre. I know I'm, my French is not so good, Kathleen, so you might have to jump in there. And other organizations, her award-winning dance film Lappanthrope aired on Bravo Television and screened at numerous international festivals. Her production Long Live was nominated for three major awards, including Outstanding Choreography. And in 2010, Kathleen was co-winner of the K.M. Hunter Dance Award. And her book is The Healing Dance, and we're going to talk about that, amongst other things, in the realm of expressive arts therapy. Hello, Kathleen, and welcome. Hello. Good to have you on the show. Let's let's dive in because we have um, the hour goes by so quickly. What is expressive arts therapy, and what is the role of the therapist, and what is the role of the client in that realm? Expressive expressive arts therapy is a way to work through and resolve psychological issues such as anxiety, depression, and the effects of trauma. Similar to psychotherapy, there's talking, where there's the client and therapist talking through the issues, but the client and therapist also have the chance to express issues and communicate each other through the, to each other through the arts. So the use of dance, poetry, painting. And this opens up a whole realm of communication that talking doesn't give us. Each art form expresses our unique issues and personality in a different way. And the approach is very client-centered. So what client-centered means is that as a therapist, I don't think that I'm the expert on someone, that someone is the expert on themselves. They know best how to heal, and my job is to help guide them to a sense of internal wisdom that will help guide their healing process. And the arts really helps people uh, get to know themselves because the arts have the power to express the truth of our society and of ourselves. And as such, when we're expressing the truth through the art, it's going to help let us know what we need to do to heal. Well, let me ask you, let let me jump on that. How does the art or arts in general help one um, express the societal truths or self-truths? Well, I would say there are two styles of artistic expression. And one is very perfectionistic. So if I'm studying to be 
a classical ballet dancer or a classical musician, there's a very, very specific way about when I've done a good job and when I haven't done a good job. The violin note has to be done in a certain way. The foot has to be pointed on a certain angle. And this is what I call uh, beauty coming from a sense of an external idea, ideal. And that actually does not help us express our truth because I'm actually aiming to be something that I'm not. So in expressive arts, we don't do the art form in a arts in a very perfectionistic manner. What we do instead is we follow the lead of the art and just let stuff happen. And there is no predetermined idea about what the art should look like. And when so this frees the client to express who they are. Okay. And and when you say the art, you're talking about like in your in your book, you're looking at dance it's it's all the different art forms. Yes. So when a client walks into my private practice and maybe they're feeling really depressed that day. So I will say, show me with your hands what the depression feel like, feels like. And they might show like a fist drawing it into their torso. Or they might say it feels like someone's pressing down on my shoulders. And right from there, we take it in the, into the arts. So can you create poem that expresses that heaviness you feel? Can you take it into the studio and start moving around your body in a really heavy way and show me? Or we put a big sheet of paper on the wall and they start to draw what it looks like. And it doesn't matter, I, I, and you refer to that in your book, that in some ways it's almost easier with clients that don't have a background in, you know, being an artist because they're not striving for the perfection of the art. It's art is the vehicle. It's not the the art um, as as being the main focus is am I correct in that? Absolutely. When I work with professional artists, the expressive arts therapy work can actually be more challenging and less accessible because we have to spend a period of time kind of sweeping and not uh, sweeping away the should or should not that they've learned. So they really lift their leg and it's programmed in their neurobiology to point their foot. But a pointed foot might, might not express how they feel that day. So when I work with artists, it's almost about unprogramming what they think they should do so that who they are can be expressed in the art. So, it's, so that their internal authentic self comes through instead of trying to create this external um, kind of posturing people do sometimes? Is that Absolutely. And for professional artists, there's also a lot of self-esteem issues that when they hit the mark with the perfect ideal, they feel really great. And when they don't, they feel horrible. Right, <laughs> right. So uh, those trained. are a lot of the issues I work through when I work with artists as well. Well, I want to jump to another aspect of your book, and this is much more personal. Um, you yourself uh, suffered from sexual abuse, and you speak about this in your book. But you also say um, that... Sexual abuse victims have fragile boundaries. What yes. do you mean by that, and why is that? So, first, I'd like to define personal boundary. I'd like the listener to think of personal boundaries as a gate that's both physical and emotional, and it's the gate that we let open when there's things that we want to let into our lives, and that we close when there's things that we want to keep out. So a simple example of this is if you meet someone at a party and you just get a feeling like you don't trust them or you don't like them, then you're going to 
put up boundaries like walk away from them, use words that let them know you're not interested in talking with them, you're not going to give them your phone number or your email address or your Facebook account. So that's a, a nice simple definition I think that people can grab onto. So when someone is violated with rape or sexual abuse, someone has disregarded that gate, has physically and emotionally entered the person uh, through violence or coercion. And what the effect is that, first of all, the gate gets damaged. So the ability to put up boundaries and to trust someone, trust oneself as knowing when to put up a boundary, people start to lose trust in that. Also, the message that the abuser gives is that you're worthless to me and my needs are 100% more important than your feelings and needs. And the victim can take in this message and believe that they are worthless. And a feeling of worth is what really enables us to stand up and defend our boundaries. So, for instance, if someone feels like they're only a doormat, they'll continue to offer themselves as a doormat to others until they feel like they're worthy of something more. So... Abuse victims will feel like they don't know where they stop and others begin. They won't trust their ability to say no. They won't trust their judgment on others because also there's a lot of self-blame often in rape or sexual abuse. And sometimes they'll need to put up really strong boundaries, such as never letting anyone in because they can't navigate the day-to-day boundaries. Um, and one example I like to give is that I had a lot of trouble with uh, personal relationships with letting people get close to me when I was in my 20s. So I would let people get close, but when they got to a certain point, I would do things to sabotage even good relationships and bad relationships. So I was always pushing people away. And then I decided that I really wanted to work on issues, so I found a male therapist because I knew the male therapist would trigger those issues in me. He was an expressive arts therapist, and through the arts, I had the chance to re- rebuild up my ability to express boundaries. I did big paintings, made loud music that really said, yes, I'm alive in the world. And I would also, through theatrical reenactment, would practice saying no to my therapist all the time. He loved it when I said no to him. He was cheering for me that I was <laughs> learning to say no. And I think it was through that ability to be able to say yes and no that I, when I finally met my husband, who's a wonderful man, that I was actually able let him in. I was able to be close to him because I could navigate those day-to-day boundaries. So is it fair to say, Kathleen, that um, in in your personal experience and even in your professional experience that sexual abuse victims have real issues in terms of there's a tendency to isolate themselves? It can go either way. The fragile boundaries can be just letting the world in all the time without having an ability to stop, which would be, for instance, the example that I gave earlier of meeting someone at a party that you don't quite trust, but giving them all your contact information and agreeing to meet them the next day. When really, if you kind of sat with yourself and thought, do I want to give this person this information? You would say no. And then in reaction to that world just flowing in all the time, someone might put up really extreme boundaries. So it really can go either way um, with people recovering from rape or sexual abuse. And can one ever um, really recover from sexual abuse or rape? And is expressive arts therapy a vehicle to bring it about? I know you, you talked about that in your book, that it helped you. But, but in, um, in your work and um, 
and I don't know what the statistics are in this realm, but um, can sexually abused rape, you know, rape vi- vi- victims, incest victims really ever fully become cured? If becoming 100% cured is as if the rape or sexual abuse went away, no. It will always be a part of someone's life story. But what can happen is your day-to-day reaction to it, that kind of re-traumatizing that can happen every day for abuse victims where they're on the subway and just the smell of someone suddenly takes them to the trauma. And um, that kind of re-being traumatized in daily life can happen, flashbacks. That can absolutely 100% be healed. And also reframing, like, Today, I would say what happened to me when I was young with sexual abuse and having had an eating disorder, it really forms who I am today. And it sounds crazy, but I wouldn't go back and change it because I like who I am today. And so there can be this process of coming to terms with it, with having it be in the past and not having it come up in the present. So in that way, 100% people can heal. So you're and saying this can be the past, but people don't have to keep reliving the past. Absolutely. And some people think you need to end therapy, go and relive that abuse moment. And I have a slightly different perspective. I think if you relive it just in the same way it happened, like re-experiencing it, you can re-traumatize yourself. So what I like to say to clients is, go back there and do and say the thing that you didn't get done or weren't able to do back then. For instance, if someone's attacked violently, they might not have said no, because if they said no, they might have been killed. So they have literally swallowed or suppressed their no. So therapy can be going back to the physical feeling of that moment and saying no. Or I have lots of clients when they kind of regress back to that moment, their legs start moving and they start running. And I always say to them, run, run, you didn't get to run before, so run this time. So they get that physical release of running or saying no, often shaking, a lot of shaking happens. Um, when a deer is attacked by a lion, once the lion leaves and they're safe, the deer will shake for five minutes. And we forget as humans that we're mammals just like a deer and that we actually need to shake off our trauma. So if someone's in a car accident and they don't shake off their trauma afterwards. It can stay with them. So there's all these physical releases that can happen. Right. I think it's Japolsky, a neurobiologist who speaks about that too. I think the book is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's about yeah. this very thing <laughs> that, that you, the human species, we've forgotten to shake. You can't, that all of these chemicals and hormones that are released will kind of just hang out in your body until you do something about it. And it has to be a physical reaction. It has to be a physical reaction. We can't talk our way out of trauma. And it's amazing. If I help someone stay present in their body and follow their body cues, the shaking inevitably arrives or the the running, feet running. They'll be lying on their back, but their feet will look like they're running in the air. Um, And it's amazing how frequently it, it, it comes back to that. And the vehicle, in terms of using expressive arts therapy, you may use, the. it comes from the client, so it may be a dance, it may start with, I mean, how, take us through how that might, might work. Okay, so often 
arriving at the moment of doing the thing that wasn't done at the time the trauma happens takes a couple months because there's a, a whole phase of trust building. So when I first see someone, they start to do a painting. Maybe they've never painted before, and it's about I will paint next to them to give them the confidence to paint, and I won't watch them while they'll paint. It's just about creating a safe place where they feel like their stuff can arrive into. Once that trust is built, then... Through following physical cues, they will know what they need to do to heal. So someone will come in and I will always have them start with a body check-in. What are you noticing in your body today? And through a stiff shoulder or a pulling in with the shoulders or a feeling of heaviness, they are always led back to the issue they need to work on. And it 100% works out this way. I love it when someone comes into my studio and says, I don't know what to work on today. So it's like, great, let's start with sensation. Also, if someone comes in with something and says, oh, I'm so sad about this, I will say, what physical sensation in your body lets you know you're sad? There's always something like a something in the body with the way they move or they hold their posture that's expressing the sadness. And right from there, to me, the image has started. So if it's a pulling down and they show me with their hand, there's the image of the hand pulling down a rope or something. And if I have them go into the studio and do that motion even bigger then it's like they're pulling a giant rope down from the sky. And so I've already moved into dancing with them. Then I'll say, what music would match this? I have a whole basket of instruments, and I will actually help them design a music piece that helps match this pulling down of the rope. And then I will play it for them as they do the dance. And I will keep saying, follow what your body wants to do next. So pulling down of the rope, their feet might start moving, they might start going into a run, the shaking might start to happen. And sometimes they won't even know necessarily why it's happening. It's just a physical reaction that needs to be resolved. But sometimes as we're doing this work, I'll take time to stop in between takes. So we'll do like first take, second take, third take, and take time to discuss. And I'll say, what did you notice about that? And frequently they'll say, I'm just, I'm just getting this memory. I don't know why it's coming up, but I'm remembering this time that my mother, I'm remembering this time I was walking down the street and it reminds me of when. So through physically being present in their body, their life stories start to emerge. I can take it into other art forms as well. I might say if an image from their life is coming up, I might take them to my poetry wall, which is actually magnetic poetry. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, start to pick out words that remind you of that story you just told me. And they move the words around and create a poem. And what's great about moving into visual arts or poetry is that dance is so ephemeral. So if they create a painting or a poem that tells their life story or the thing that they were exploring in therapy, they actually get to take it home as a memory of what happened. Um, And that really helps bridge what's happening in therapy to the outside world. They can put it on their fridge or put it on their wall that they see it when they wake up in the morning. I noticed in your book, as I read your book, I was, um, you're always involved in this form of therapy. Uh, the therapist is always working side by side. It's, it's not like, um, you know, you're, you're, um, you're kind of on even ground with your client. Absolutely on the even ground. And also it's important to, let the client know that there is a bit of a power dynamic. I'm the therapist, Mm -hmm. they're the client. 
Um, so it's never 100% even ground because they're looking to me to be a guide. But for the most part, it's much more even ground than traditional psychotherapy yeah because you're working side by side with them and you're actually uh, in your book you're talking uh, with uh, your classic case that you also talk about with alan with the eating disorder i mean you're right in there with him doing the art doing the yeah we like to call it artistic companion ah okay if you're going to go into a dark cave which our hardest psychological issues are really like entering a dark and scary cave isn't it easier to go in when you have a companion with you or a guy who knows a little bit about the process? So we actually will do two paintings, the client doing one and the therapist doing the other. Um, I will play music for the client when they dance. I will also do something called artistic response. So when a client tells me a story or finishes an art piece, I actually will pick up my guitar and play them an improvised song responding to what they have told me and this makes me vulnerable too i'm not a trained guitar player i don't know any chords <laughs> i pick up that guitar and i sing them something from my heart so they they feel me as a real person who has real responses and who's willing to take risks with them Yes. You're, you're listening to WERU Community Radio. My guest is Kathleen Ray, the author of The Healing Dance, The Life and Practice of an Expressive Arts Therapist. We're at 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 FM Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. So if you've just joined us, we're talking about expressive arts therapy and Kathleen's book, The Healing Dance. Kathleen, I want to I segue to another uh, question that you cover in your book. And, and this again about yourself and then with the case study you have in your book with Alan. You suffered from the eating disorders yourself. What actually constitutes an eating disorder? And can you identify for listeners how your disorder came about? The most common answer to this question is such and such fat percentage or number of times you binge and purge a month. But I like to answer this question more from a psychological perspective. My answer is if you are spending a predominant amount of your mental energy on thoughts about food, dieting, or negative body image, and you're doing this so much that you're not present in your life, then I would say you have an eating disorder. This Mm -hmm. is rather a scary answer because so many of us fit or have fit this description in our lifetime. So I asked the listener, have you ever been talking to a friend and you can't concentrate on what they're saying because you are thinking about a donut you want to buy, counting calories that you ate that day, figuring out what exercise you're going to do so you can erase the calories you've eaten, or thinking about how ugly your body is or how great you'll feel once you lose weight. If you spend a large part of your day on thoughts such as this, you won't have mental space and energy available to spend on life-invigorating things. So that's my definition of the eating disorder. Okay, so why are why do we have so many young women affected by them? And um, and also, you know, you, you speak about this in the world of dance, why this is so prominent. But even beyond the world of dance, why is why why are these so prominent eating disorders? Well, I'll speak about my own experience with why I developed an eating disorder. My sister and my grandmother were both obsessed about their weight and dieting. And I found out later after I had recovered from an eating disorder that they actually both had bulimia. And I had bulimia too. And we actually weren't, we didn't talk about it. We didn't share this. 
so basically, these two really important role models were teaching me about how to have an eating disorder from a very young age as I grew up and watched them and idolized them. Mm. I studied ballet, and in ballet, they're obsessed with the anorexic-looking dancer. So I was getting that message constantly that if I wanted to be successful, I needed to be very skinny, which is fine when I was 10, but when I went through puberty and became curvy, mm. uh, I just didn't know what to do. I had to, like, I had to be thin if I wanted to be successful. The sexual abuse I suffered also brought about intense body shame, and it drew me to the self-harming behaviors of eating disorders. And then on top of that, there's fashion magazines, billboards, movies that are all promoting diet and the attainment of the perfect body as a way to be happy. So I like to think that I was a child soldier walking through a body image minefield. It would have taken an utter miracle for me to make it through without an eating disorder. So, as you can see from my story, the influences are so intense, and I think that we're going to continue to have young people heading towards eating disorders if we continue to give them the message that happiness and self-esteem is based on this perfect body, and that the perfect body is such a narrow definition, it's only one way. So, I would really like to see young people being taught to feel beautiful regardless of their size, to feel self-worth coming from an internal sense. Unfortunately, because our advertising industry is based upon making people feel bad about themselves so that they'll need to buy that product to feel good about themselves, then I don't know how soon change is going to happen from the realm of advertising and media. Right, it has um, to come Because they're trying elsewhere. to sell a product. Right, right. It's a consumer, uh, consumeristic society in which, um, and all of these, uh, and and it's interesting, even as as you uh, point out, that this wasn't discussed in your family. It was just kind of you. It's almost like you picked it up through osmosis. You know what I mean? Just being Absolutely. around. Absolutely. This is the way. Woman, if I'm going to be a woman, this is what I need to do. I didn't know there was another way. I think having healthy role models for young people. If I had even just one healthy role model who was like, you're beautiful the way you are, I might have been swayed in a different direction. Maybe not. The influences were so strong. But I, I think providing role models for people growing up is really important. Do you think the dance community is changing or will eventually change? I mean, you spoke about in your book, you were five feet six and you had to be less than 105 pounds for your dance weight. Which is crazy. That's yeah, that puts me at a body fat index where I wouldn't be having a period. Like it's 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 mm-hmm. crazy that they wanted me to be that thin. I don't think the general public actually wants to see skeletal dancers on stage. It's something that's happening internally in the ballet world, and I think it's a little bit of the Olympic complex where Olympic athletes always need to run faster than they did before, jump higher than they did before. And in ballet, I think it's become be thinner. Be thinner and then be thinner, be thinner. But at a certain point, you're too thin. And at a certain point, the public actually doesn't want to see that. I think ballet would do really well and the audiences would start to increase again if they had healthy women on stage and representing live, aliveness and life and vitality. And I don't know if things have changed. I know that a lot of it's gone underground when I was fired from the National, they told me I was fired because I was too fat. Mm-hmm. And only one person was in the room, only the director, when I was told that. Nowadays, they would have two people in the room, and they would never mention weight. They would make up other reasons for why the person is fired. 
But it could um, still very well be weight. Absolutely. I was in a classical ballet school, which I will not name. And I was in the change room and the girls were talking. They were like 14 years old. And they said, oh, they didn't schedule lunch for us this year on Tuesdays. And uh, one of the girls said, oh, that's because they don't want us to eat. And then another girl said, oh, you're not supposed to say things like that. And that spoke to it perfectly that it's, it's still there and it's gone underground. And underground, people not talking about it is actually more dangerous than if it's overt. If it's overt, you can name it. If it's underground, you start to think you're crazy. Oh, <laughs> exactly. giving you the message. I think that's why so many people suffer from these very things we're talking about and that you speak to in your book that you suffered from. I mean, sexual abuse victims who go underground and never uh, tell anyone, won't tell a family member because they're ashamed or feel it was somehow their fault. Uh, people with eating disorders, same thing, keeping it to themselves, trying to not let anyone know that they're binging and purging or constantly thinking about food. I mean, these. This is how um, these very issues uh, ruin people's lives because Absolutely. because they and isolate them and they don't they don't have the they don't, just don't feel that they're they can talk about them. They're taboo. And art expressing through the art is a wonderful way to shed light to bring these issues forth. I work with a group of uh, youth. We worked with them for a year. They're inner city kids who have questioning about gender and sexuality. They faced a lot of teasing at their schools. Um, they're really struggling. And we bring them together. And they're isolated. They don't talk about their experiences, and there's a lot of shame. And we bring them together as a group, and we say, okay, let's make a multidisciplinary theater piece on your life stories. Very tentatively, they start telling their life stories, and they start creating dances. They write a script. By the end of the year, all their life stories are living in all these characters in this play. And there's a safeness to it because when they're playing the character in the theater piece, it's not them. It's this character. And it provides this safe place for them to let their stories flow into, to tell the story about their abuse. But it's not them telling the story. It's this character in a play, and it's done through a dance. And so it sheds light. It sheds light, and it takes away the isolation they feel. And do you and think then, that the dance helps to, it, because it personally distances them a little bit? They can see it as a witness rather than reliving? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I worked with this woman who would never admit that she was angry. She always saw herself as a really nice person. And she would make these pieces of music that were loud and cacophonous. And one day I taped a piece of music for her and I said, I want you to listen to this and tell me what you think. And she's listening to it and she went, oh, my God. That's an angry piece of music. And it was the first time she was able to take back her own, her anger, because she saw it from afar by listening to this music piece that I had taped that she had done. Um, So we're actually able to see things and learn about ourselves when we can see them at a bit of a distance. If it's too close, it's a big blur, and we can't figure things out. Because you're enmeshed in it. It's the goldfish in the bowl. Absolutely. Now, you you talk in your book also about um, uh, a recipe for transformation that I thought was very interesting as I read it in your book. And I I wanted you to share that with listeners. It's it's uh, you 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 share a neurological perspective um, about transformation. Can you speak to that? Yes. First, I would like to say when I talk about neurobiology, it's basically a representation of what's happening physically and emotionally. So it's not separate or different than our experience of life. 
But it is interesting to see what happens to brain pathways as we go through therapy. So one of the first things for transformation is we need to have a new experience. If nothing new happens, nothing will change in our brain. No new neural pathways will happen, will stay the same. Then there are seven other things that once the new experience happens will help save the neural pathways that are forming. One is reduced anxiety. So if we feel relaxed and open up to people, then we're more able to go into the new experience. The second one is sustained concentration. So if we become really concentrated on something, then it helps solidify the pathways. The other is that repetition. It needs to be done over and over and over again, and every time the new experience happens, the neural pathway is strengthened. The other one is experiencing intense emotions. And this happens through the arts because the arts tend to stir up our emotions. So when someone's creating a dance piece, they're often having a really intense emotional experience, and that also helps to have the effect of hitting save on the computer, which is our brain, and saving the neural pathways. The other two ones are related to love. So dopamine surges, which is the brain chemical that's related to romantic love. So if I'm just falling in love, there's going to be tons of dopamine cursing through my brain. That also has the effect of pressing save. The other one is oxytocin, which is the love hormone that's related to bonding, bonding between husband and wife bonding between mother and child. And it is thought to have the effect to kind of wash out and dissolve old neural pathways so that new ones can be formed. Um, and is the main reason why we're able to cohesively do things in our society as a couple or as a family because uh, we're able to adapt to new people that we're bonding with. And the final one is sleep or periods of rest. We need to repeat and then rest in between and then repeat again. And that also helps uh, neural pathways solidify. And the interesting thing about this list is the arts are a really great, great way to make all of these things happening. The arts bring forth emotion, so you have intensity. When someone's following where the art went, wants to go, it becomes really concentrated in a heightened sense of awareness. Through expressive arts therapy, someone can come weekly and they can repeat the experience over and over again. If they're learning to assert their boundaries and say no, we can do repetitive theatrical exercises where they scream no at me. I, I do this one exercise where the client sits in a chair and tells me to move to different parts of the studio so I'm further or closer to them. By keeping repeating, it can help them feel like that's who they are becoming. Well, you're empowering them. Yes, absolutely. And Love is a really important part of expressive arts therapy, too. And it might sound funny, like, why love? Love is for romance or for mother and child. But love can really come up in therapy. And I would like to think of it more as unconditional acceptance, which is what I believe love is. Like, I will love you if you yell at me. I will love you if you do this. Love stays steady. Unconditional love. So do you, do you love your clients? I unconditionally accept them, and I feel deep, warm compassion for them. So, yes, it, it's a feeling of love. It's not romantic love, absolutely right. not. But that would be important, then, in expressive arts therapy. Yes, and also, I love their art. I treat their art with unconditional regard. I worked with a boy who had had numerous surgeries, 
and he would come into my studio and he would draw pictures of knives and chopping people up with knives. And I would unconditionally accept it. I wouldn't say, oh, that's violent or, oh, that scares me. Every single image was absolutely welcomed. Because, and I understood that he was trying to reenact this. He'd been cut open so many times, and he was trying to figure out what he felt about that. There was anger about it. He didn't want any more surgeries, but he knew the surgeries were saving his life. So there was anger, and he didn't know where to put it. So in my studio, he was able to let out these angry paintings so he didn't have to hold on to that anger, and I unconditionally accepted them. But, but he wasn't probably aware that he was making all of these angry paintings with knives and surgeries initially, or, or was he? Was he aware he was, of what this, what this art was expressing within him, or was it more that it was just a release? I mean, how did that work where it dawned on him? He was only eight, okay. so I don't know for sure if he knew exactly the dynamics, but pre- kids are pretty smart and have a lot of access to what they need to do to heal. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling if I had sat down and brought some light to it, he would have been like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? but, but you didn't need to. Is that, is that the case? Like in this to. work, you don't always need to say, okay, we're seeing a pattern with your artwork or with this or with that, that sometimes you don't always have to spell it out with the client? People don't always need to reach an analytical understanding where all the dots connect. As long as they have a healthy release and they learn a new way of being, they don't need, really need to understand why they got to where they were or why they're feeling better. The new experience is the most important, and picking it apart analytically doesn't need to happen. Sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. So arriving at a new place physically and arriving at a new understanding of it mentally can be a really satisfying match. And so some clients who have a strong ability to figure things out intellectually they really feel great when that happens, but it's not required. Okay. You're listening to an interview with Kathleen Ray, the author of The Healing Dance, The Life and Practice of an Expressive Arts Therapist. I'm also going to give you a couple of her websites, www.flowintolife.com. And also another website is the dash healing-dance.com and Ray is spelled R-E-A we're at 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 FM Bangor and streaming WERU.org we're going to continue our conversation Kathleen, I want to segue right before I start offering um, the phone number for people to call in with questions and comments on this show you talk about in your book your near-death experience and how this experience transformed your life. Would you share that with listeners? Yes. I was cottaging in northern Canada, and I decided to sleep outside, so I brought the mattress outside, and I was sleeping. As I woke up, there was a wasp around me, and it flew up my pajama arm and and bit me right in the chest. Mm. And I did not know I was allergic to wasps. So the friend that I was with turned to me and said, Are you allergic? I said, No, I'm not. And right away, my hands felt like they were on fire, my feet. I got up to take a couple steps, and I fell unconscious for 20 minutes. During this time, I felt like I was, even though I couldn't move, I felt like I was present. And I could see what was happening as if I was standing far away or above myself. And I was filled with the most profound sense of love and self-acceptance that I have ever felt in my life. And I remember thinking, 
oh, if this is dying, I'm 100% okay with this. This is so beautiful, and I've never felt this type of love in my life. Then I felt myself float higher and higher up until I reached the treetop branches in the forest canopy. And when I was there, I could, I could hear this laughing, and I could see these entities around me, and they were just laughing so hard. They could hardly speak. They were laughing so much. And I said to them, like, why are you laughing? Then I started to feel a pull on my feet as if someone had a rope on my feet and they were pulling me back to earth. And I resisted because I really wanted to know why these creatures, angels, whatever they were, were laughing. And I said, please, please tell me before I have to go back, why are you laughing? One of them stops laughing long enough to say, you people on earth have such trouble with this thing that comes so easily to us. And you in particular, you've been struggling with it your whole life. I said, what is it? What is it? And this person said, you just have to love yourself, and it's just that simple. And we're sending you back because we want you to get it right this time. I want you to go back and to love yourself. And right in that moment, I felt this tug and this pull, and I landed back in my feet, lying on the forest floor like a bang. And I knew I was back. And I said to my friend who had been giving me mouth-to-mouth and trying to drag me to the car, I said, I'm back now and I'm staying. And the first test in loving myself was the fact that I had peed my pants. <laughs> and I had to just accept that. When the ambulance came, I was so embarrassed that I had peed my pants. And I thought, okay, this is the first lesson. Just love myself for this and accept it 100%. Having experienced that profound self-acceptance, it changed me. It, it changed my choreography. I feel like in my choreography, I'm reaching for that moment, that profoundness, that intensity of experience. I feel through my work on myself and with others, it's about helping people find self-acceptance. It's hard to describe, but having a view of what it could be after coming from a place where I hated my body so much and was starving it and being bulimic and there was just so much self-harm in my life and then having this view of what it could be like it yeah I could never go back to hating myself as much as I did before and it's a daily struggle I do struggle daily to accept myself (laughs) and uh, I'm much further along in the process well, definitely. I mean, the fact that I, I love it in the, the ending of your book, even on your final acknowledgement, you talk about the imperfections that in many ways make us perfect, uh, in a sense. And um, you also struggled with dyslexia. And, um, and and here you are, you know, an author of this, um, of, of what I think is a very um, amazing and emotional and also factual book. The Healing Dance. I want to invite listeners if they'd like to call in and uh, ask you a question or, or, or comment or share some of their story perhaps. We're at one 625 9378 and I'll give that number again, one 625 weru and you can feel free to, um, to ask Kathleen a question or comment on what we've been discussing today any uh, number of looks like we do have a caller all right so caller if you'd like to give us your name and the town if you'd like or not and your question or comment hi this is Gray from Hancock hi I I find the subject very interesting and I would have a question for your guest 
I wonder if she had, uh, as part of her uh, her career, she has um, worked with or consulted with uh, uh, traditional arts healers. And I would re- reference specifically a book by uh, the Afro-Malian uh, Yaya Jalo uh, called The Healing Drum. And he talks about healing um, people with music, both uh, occupational and pathological healing um and i wonder if you he was actually living in montreal when he when he wrote that book so i wonder if you're familiar with that anyway i'll hang up and listen to what you have to say thanks very much thank you kathleen i haven't read the book but i will and i'm interested in reading it i will say that expressive arts is not a new form of therapy it actually has roots in uh shamanism and I am affiliated with this group called Spirit Fest, and we meet at the solstice, and there's drum playing, and I teach dance. And traditional healers use the arts to help people heal, to heal people's souls. And expressive arts therapy is doing the exact same thing, but it works just a little bit more in the genre of hospitals, psychotherapy, psychology. But in fact, we're using the same techniques. Art is enlivening. It brings us together as a group, helps us not feel isolated, sheds light onto our lives. And yes, it can be used in a traditional healing sense in a drum circle, or it can happen in an expressive arts therapist's office. It's interesting, Kathleen, you talk about the shamanic piece because I, you didn't mention that in your book, but I felt that thread through reading your book because in ancient healing traditions you don't have healing unless you include this aspect of music or percussion movement um even ceremonial foods i mean there's there's you know the the walkabouts you you even allude to that you do allude to that in your book telling people to take what's called a i think a liminal space walkabout liminal space is the space in between two realities. So when a young boy starts his walkabout as a young boy and ends as a man, the walkabout is the liminal space where something happens, transformation can happen. And in expressive arts therapy, when someone enters an artistic experience, they're on a walkabout. They're on a walkabout within their own psychological realm, but it's a walkabout just like the boy entering the forest. They're entering the psychological forest where things can happen. And So that walkabout experience is really important. In traditional healing practices, there's always the artistic experience, but there's also the community. These healings happen within a community circle. Expressive arts therapy can happen with the therapist and client in the studio. A lot of it also happens in community as well. So when I do a theater project with 20 youth and two other expressive arts therapists, that's the drum circle. And that sense of transformation happening in community is really powerful. Because the community all comes together for the good of each individual and the good of all, correct? Yes. And the feeling of I live life alone, I'm the only one experiencing this pain fades because we all experience some pain in our lives. Thus you lose We all live this life. We're all human. Right. And you lose the isolation. Yes. And you become part of the community. 
Um, for those who are just joining us, we're, we're speaking about the healing dance, the life and practice of an expressive arts therapist and about expressive art therapy and Kathleen's life, of course. And um, if you'd like to call with a question or a comment, please feel free to call in at 1-866-625-9378. And I'll give that again, one 625 9378 Kathleen, in terms of uh, addiction, you have in your book, and I'm going to quote you, some people think addiction is cured from abstaining. But I believe that addiction heals when the power relationship with the addictive substance is broken. So my question to you is, um, how can expressive arts therapy get one there? And is that all one needs to break that cycle of addiction? I'd say there's two parts to addiction. There's the physical addiction and there's the psychological addiction. So physical addiction is when you're physically addicted to cocaine or the adrenaline rush of unprotected sex or the physically neutralizing qualities of large amounts of carbs. And the physical addiction definitely has to be dealt with by abstaining. The only way you're going to not be addicted to that substance is to stop using it. But this often doesn't address the emotional reason why you chose your addiction. People are psychologically addicted to a substance or activity often because they're trying to escape or solve or fix pain or avoid it. They're trying to find an escape. And so part of healing addictions has to involve learning other resources to deal with emotional pain. The arts help hold and express our pain. They give people a different resource to deal with the pains that are inevitably a part of life. You're not going to escape life without pain. It's part of living pain and joy. And the arts can help us express that, help hold us, help communicate our pain to another so we don't feel alone we can find beauty in our pain by creating a painting that, that helps soothe us or that inspires us. And when this happens, the power of the addictive substance fades. It no longer becomes the only answer someone has. And once the power fades, then life for a recovering addict isn't about concentrating on abstaining, concentrating on I can't have that. Instead, instead, life moves to spending time on living life. It's like, do you want to spend your whole life focusing on abstaining or do you want to spend your whole life focused on living? So I think addiction really heals when both the physical and the psychological issues related to the addiction start to heal. So you do, so you would, and in the case, in your case study of Alan, which was, I, I thought, a very interesting study about this uh, this client who had a was hoarding food had a, 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 a eating disorder. You actually insist at one point that he goes and gets help with a nutritionist. And yes. and you so so in this venue, you, do you find that you're overlapping with other disciplines? If a client looks like they physically not make it, might not make it through therapy because they might die from their addiction. It's my responsibility to say, you know what, I'm not a nutritionist and you need to go see an expert on this mm-hmm. to figure out what you need to eat. His blood levels were like rising up huge, he was having heart issues, like he really needed to figure out what foods he needed to eat to be healthy. And I will often work with other practitioners. So I said to his nutritionist, he gave me permission to talk to her. 
And I said, if you tell him what he can't eat, it's really triggering for him, and it's going to lead to him wanting to binge. So I said, I want you to only tell him what he can eat. So when he came in, she would say, I want you to eat more whole wheat bread. So she never would tell him, don't eat this. Just would tell him what he needed to eat more of. And so it didn't trigger him into Which binging. Was a, so I will often work with different practitioners. Which is a different approach. Um, and so she had your guidance in saying this is the way to work with this client where it will be effective. And then uh, with her work, I mean, Alan's story is a great success story in your, in your book as well. I'm speaking with Kathleen Ray, the author of The Healing Dance. Her website, again, is www.flowintolife.com. And Kathleen Ray, spelled R-E-A, um, from Canada. Kathleen, in our time remaining, what haven't we talked about that you would like listeners to know about um, expressive arts therapy, about healing? Well, I'd like to tell a story from my own life, which I think really nicely lets the listener understand how the arts can heal. When I was, I suffered from eating disorder for 10 years. I was quite sick, binging and purging up to eight times a day. Sometimes I would be deathly thin. Other times I would gain weight, but I could have died. And when I started the healing process, I gained a little bit of weight. I went to my ballet company and I said, look, I'm going to get back to my performance weight as soon as I can, but please give me leeway. And they ended up firing me and also telling me, that I had embarrassed the nation of Canada because I was performing on stage and I was too fat. Because of injuries of other dancers, they weren't able to pull me off stage. It was mortifying. I lost my job and embarrassed the nation of Canada with my fat thighs. I can laugh about it now Mm -hmm. because it sounds so ludicrous. So a couple months after I was fired, I had the chance to choreograph a piece. And I just had this really strong desire to tell my story. And I thought I was crazy like to actually talk about bulimia as a ballet dancer publicly, like, that's dangerous. No one ever does that. But I, in the studio, that's all that wanted to come out was this story. So I got these bathroom scales and I embedded my point shoes into them. I built this mirror frame with no mirror in it so I could, as if I was looking at it, but I could walk through it and dance around it. And I also made up these soliloquies telling my story. And the piece was half an hour in length and it took so much bravery to do, but I couldn't stop the story from coming out. And when people saw it, they were weeping in the audience. So many of my ballet friends came to see the piece. And it wasn't my story. It was our story. We all had gone through such similar experiences. And just feeling the solidarity of people in the audience was so healing for me that I told this story and I wasn't shamed for it. It was accepted and it moved others. Um, And it let people know that change is needed. If we don't tell our stories, no one knows that we're suffering, no one knows that change needs to happen. It also was a marker in my healing. It was such a brave woman who did that piece. And I was like a very shy person who had trouble saying no to people. And I couldn't believe that I had done this piece. And it's like I had to meet that brave woman over the next five years until I realized, oh, that person is me. And it created this marker where I couldn't go back to being sick. I had let the story out, something had changed in me, and I, I couldn't go backwards. I could only go forwards from that point. Hmm. And did, how, did that, were you involved in expressive arts therapy at that point? I was not. So this, Making that piece made me think, 
this feels so great and is so healing. I want to spend my life helping other people do the same through the arts. And that's how you found your life's work and your true calling in your life then? Yes. Through get, through being too fat for the <laughs> Canada <laughs> Royal Ballet Company and, yes. um, and getting fired. And what a gift that was uh, to you and then to all those that you interact with. At the time, I would not have said it was a gift. Oh, no, <laughs> looking it was back, I can now say it is. it was a gift. It was absolutely devastating. Okay, in the last few uh, moments, other authors, other books, other websites, and, and include your own. Anything I haven't included that you, if people want to do more more uh, delving into this room. Yes, there are several wonderful authors in the field of expressive arts. Steve Levine is one of them. Bruce Moon is another one of them. Um, expressive arts is making its way into so many different genres, even traditional genres of psychotherapy and hospital settings. Uh, it's really something that's starting to grow. Um, and if you just Google it, there are so many websites and books that will come up. Excellent. And your websites, want to give those again? Yes. Um, flowintolife.com is my website that talks about my private practice. I also have a dance company, and the dance company is called Raison d'Etre Dance Productions, and that website is R-E-A-S-O-N-D-E-T-R-E.com, Raison d'Etre. And a lot of the work I do in communities and putting on performances happens through my dance company. And then there's a website for the book, which is thehealingdance.com with dashes in between. Excellent. I really appreciated your willingness to share all this. And I was just thinking about your story of that ballet. You know, I'm sure that that was not, would, didn't just affect the ballet world, but many people who struggle with this idea of being told sometimes as children they're too fat or they don't, they're not pretty or they're not beautiful. And um, so I really love you, love the fact that you shared that story with us. And I want to thank you, Kathleen Ray, author of The Healing Dance, The Life and Practice of an Expressive Arts Therapist, for sharing this hour with us and um, all of your wisdom and your stories, healing stories. And I thank listeners for listening to Healthy Options and also Amy Brown for engineering. And again, happy 2013. Thank you. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers.